Welcome to the We Wonder Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Schlachter, and this is the podcast where we talk about science, technology, and its impact on society. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to get new episode alerts. We're also on social media. On Twitter and Facebook, you can find us at We Wonder Podcast. You can also shoot us an email at feedback at wewonderpodcast.com. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Also, feel free to send us topic requests, guest requests, or do you know somebody that should be on the show? Let us know. We look forward to it. And now, let's kick things off. Welcome, guys, to the We Wonder Podcast. Glad to have you here for another episode. Uh, we took a break for a bit with COVID, and uh, you know, I changed jobs now at Anthem instead of uh, Stanley Black and Decker, but glad to be back here, hoping to pick up the, the pace again and keep doing these month to month. And I'm excited to have for the first time back here, uh, Michelle Yi in, as our guest. Um, she's somebody I met um, maybe a year, year and a half ago at a Emory Ethics workshop. And um, she was on the panel and it was just really fascinating to hear her talk about the work that she's doing at Slalom. Uh, it's AI for good. And, uh, and yeah, we just kind of became friends and, and had a lot of conversations since. And so it's really excited to pull her into this podcast. So Michelle has background in artificial intelligence and analytics, and she's the practice area lead for AI for Good at Slalom. Uh, Michelle, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. What a crazy time. <laughs> I know. I know. It is really crazy. We need a lot of good at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... What does it mean to do to do AI for good? Like, and are there people out there doing AI for bad? <laughs> I mean, that's a great. Well, <laughs> we could certainly get into that piece, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I think you know, AI for good means a lot to different people. Um, for slalom and kind of like my current role, which I can get into more later if you're interested, is um, you know the reason we call it the AI Center Purpose is because uh, you know we do commercial AI work, all the good stuff that you know, is sometimes for good, but sometimes is um, you know, just to optimize business processes. We actually take 25% of what we deliver and we reinvest it in this capability called innovation for good. So that means collaborations with the American Cancer Society, a lot of cool work in the life sciences space, especially given the current nature of COVID-19 and, and things like that. So that's kind of a cool, a cool model, right? Like you're you're taking some of the profit that you make from your your traditional commercial customers and then reinvesting it into AI for good. Exactly. And so, do they know that upfront? Like, is that something that you you market kind of like you know, like you go to the store and they say like ten percent of all profits <laughs> to ten dollars will go to <laughs> you know some some charity, um, and then you buy it, you know, for that reason. Do you do you go out and say that? And like, does that? I mean, do, do companies buy into that? Yeah, and I think um, and please. Tell me if you're seeing, you know, other things, you know, at your company or elsewhere. But I think something that COVID-19 has really brought out is that there is a need to dedicate consciously, um, in addition to kind of like all the different current events, you know, with um, some of the anti-racism and uh, different things like that. But there's really a need for focus on using things, whether it's technology or AI for good. Um, And that resonates a lot with our clients and other people that we're trying to partner with. So um, I think more and more you're seeing companies try to be more purpose-driven. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting because like we're we're kind of at this like wild west point with AI where I think uh, we're we're not always as um, accountable. I think in a lot of ways. Like I I was talking to our, our chief medical officer um, at Anthem for my group, and um and you know she made the point that she's personally liable as a doctor when she does something wrong, and um we were just having this discussion about like who's liable when when AI does something wrong. Um, and it's, and it's at this point, it's, it's not that personal liability. Right. Um, on the other hand, like, I mean, she spends hundreds of hours, you know, preparing to be ethical, (laughs) (laughs) to, to be personally liable. Uh, I don't, we don't, we don't do that. I mean, maybe you and I do it maybe, (laughs) um, for fun, but not in any formalized way, not in any, any, you know, validated way. Yeah, although I think we're starting to see a little bit more structure and framework coming up around like ethical AI and, you know, that conference you mentioned, you and I met at was around AI and ethics. So there's there's definitely um, more of that coming out. I think I also saw an announcement that Google is going to start selling services around ethical AI. So, oh, what is that? I, I didn't know that. What is that going to look like? That's a great question. (laughs) Yeah, it's just some kind of, uh, I think, professional services that Google is also going to be offering. There's different certifications popping up. Um, But I think it's hard, too, to figure out, like, there's so much, there's so many different things that we could do, but how do we decide what to focus on? Yeah. You know, I was at, um, I was at NeurIPS in in Vancouver last year in December, and um, we had a, we had like a workshop where we talked about, um, you know, ethics and AI and, um, and Yashua Benjo was the, the kind of like the, one of the lead discussion people in that, in that workshop. And it was pretty small. It was like maybe 50 of us or so. Um, and it was interesting cause like he came out with this stance on, um, on facial recognition. And he said that like, um, facial recognition should not be offered as a service. Um, and he talked about like Google and Amazon and others specifically. And, um, for those of you guys that don't know, Yashua Benjo is like one of the sort of like one of the the founders of, um, you know, modern day deep learning. So he's pretty influential in the field. Um, and I was, I, I guess I, I hadn't really researched him politically. So I, I was a little surprised by that um, because I, to me, it's like facial recognition isn't inherently wrong. It's just that it's, it's maybe done wrong or, or it's applied in the wrong way. Um, but yeah, I, it's weird, right? It's, it's like, how do we, how do we find the ethical boundaries without it, it becoming sort of crazy ideological? Uh, not that I'm accusing him of being <laughs> crazy ideological, but it, um, it, for me, it, it kind of went in that direction. Well, that's a really interesting thought, actually. So um, on a similar vein, I was watching, I think it was maybe on Wired or something that the CEO of LinkedIn was talking about how LinkedIn and the applications of AI ML within LinkedIn and, and the increasing use of, of AI ML in general um, is is creating more of a network gap and a lot of, and there's lots of reasons for this, but one of the big reasons, um, you know, besides like different uh, opportunities, upscale and things like that was that like the platforms when they're being created or the AIs when they're being created are not necessarily inclusive all the way from the data collection to the, you know, the actual creation of the algorithms or, or products. So I'm curious, yeah. I'd love to hear kind of like what you're seeing out there, what your take is on, on that. Yeah. Well, I think first, like maybe we should just talk about what it means to be inclusive and, and could I throw it back at you first and, and just ask sort of like when you say inclusive, um, I, I think you probably mean something much deeper than, than sort of like the lay term. So, um, 
maybe if you could walk through that for a minute and then I'll jump in with my thoughts. Well, I guess in the context of AIML, like the immediate thing that comes to mind is just having different types of people, diversity of thought and people um, involved in the whole end-to-end process, right? So whether we are trying to, I don't know, engage minority communities to increase uh, participation in clinical trials, which is really low, by the way, um, or we're trying to improve facial recognition, like are these people being um, kind of transparently communicated to and brought along the journey? Um, yeah from beginning to end. Right. Well, so like, I'll, yeah, so I, I had an interesting experience um, at a conference I was at a couple years ago. And uh, yeah, it was a, um, it was a security conference. So, right. So when I was at Stanley, you know, Stanley has a second largest electronic security business, um, I believe globally. Um, and so as I was trying to build out AI for that security business, I went to one of their conferences and there's a lot of, it was a large international presence. And so, uh, there was this um, Chinese company that was there and they had um, this this AI algorithm that was doing facial recognition, um, age prediction, gender prediction. It would even identify like the objects that you had on you, like a bag or briefcase or whatever. And it was funny because like every time I went over to their their booth and I saw their TV, like I was always like 10 years younger. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> I love this. And I started talking to them and I was like, guys, why, why am I always like 10 years younger on your system? And it turned out that, you know, this was a Chinese company and they had only trained their system on, on Chinese faces. And this was sort of like one of the first times they had really brought it out like internationally. And they were, they were here in the U S trying to market it to companies. But I mean, ultimately <laughs> it didn't, it didn't know how to like deal with a Caucasian face. And I was like, I was just always like, getting, you know, a 10 year younger, you know, prediction, which was awesome. So, I mean, that wasn't really a problem for me. Right. But like it, it just showed kind of that scenario of not, of not being inclusive in, in the training process. Right. So that, that's like data. Um, but then I think the other piece you mentioned is like being inclusive all along the way. So like, you know, how do you use this system? Like, like, um, I mean, for facial recognition, like for that example, you want to be inclusive in the data set so that you can accurately rep, like recognize faces from, from all different races and ethnicities and people with disabilities or, you know, maybe disfigurations or whatever. Right. Um, but then there's also like, how do you use it and like, what's an acceptable way to use it and what's like due process and, and, you know, is it, is it evidence in the court of law? Is it, um, is it admissible for like making insurance decisions? Right. Or like, there's just, there's so many or business decisions. Like I think, there's, there's so many different pieces to it. Um, so yeah, at Anthem, now that I'm on the, on the healthcare side, um, you know, so I'm given that this is my, my first podcast really, since I've, I've been at Anthem where I'm talking about it, just a little bit of context. Um, so I'm now our, um, exponential technology, um, portfolio lead, and that's really focused on artificial intelligence, um, also quantum computing, blockchain, and other, other sort of cutting edge tech. And so, for us, I mean, we're trying to define those ethics as a company right now. Um, and we're trying to make sure that, you know, we're not going to make decisions that adversely impact, um, you know, underrepresented populations, um, you know, uh, unusual, you know, cases when we don't want to, I mean, some of the, some of the AI is used to, um, price our insurance products, right. Some of the AI is used to auto approve claims, um, 
you know, some of the AI uh, will be used to help, you know, triage different conditions. Um, I mean, that's an interesting one for me. Like if you come in um, and you're, you're Ashkenazi Jewish or you're, you know, um, African or, um, you know, you're Middle Eastern, like your, your propensity to different like medical outcomes, you know, is not the same as everyone else because you've got, you know, genetic disorders and, and, and genotypes that are just different. Um, and, and so, you know, that kind of stuff I think needs to come into the AI so that it, it doesn't, it doesn't send you down the wrong path more often than somebody who's, who's more, more mainstream. Right. Um, so I think a lot of those things are not there right now. Um, sort of like that personalized, um, triage, right. At, at this point, even doing triage at all with AI is sort of considered a breakthrough, but like, how long is that acceptable before those other things matter enough that people push back? So I, yeah, I don't know if that's a good answer. I'm just talking stream of conscious. <laughs> well, for um, personalized healthcare, I think that's a really interesting um, piece to dig into, right? Because like a lot of times we sort of train on lots and lots of data and then we um, provide generalized. <laughs> it's not really that personalized to you. <laughs> we kind of match you up to the closest cluster or group of people that resemble similar preferences to you, but you're not necessarily that unique you are not you're unique not the, yeah you're not the snowflake people told you you were so, um but you know where it gets so interesting too is like uh just to give a even more specific example is you know when we're talking about ai for good it's like we uh, for example we did this uh, like really awesome collaboration with american cancer society um and had just incredible outcomes around breast cancer now there's different, but like the amount of data that we collect on breast cancer, and this is shifting. And um, I know organizations like the ACS and, and many others are trying to get more engaged in different types of communities. But traditionally in the past, um, a lot of data that's been collected on breast cancer has been from Caucasian women. So if, if we're designing ML algorithms and doing lots of research, can, can we necessarily extrapolate that the findings from like all of the findings and treatments developed from this information largely collected from a certain group can therefore then apply to women in a different group. I mean, that's. So Michelle, could you talk like how, how do you mitigate that? Like what, tell me like, what do you, you know, I, I guess there's the ideal future and there's the now. So like what, what can you do in the, in the now? And then how does it look different? Like in the ideal future? Yeah. I mean, honestly, the, <laughs> the ideal future, yeah, is, and I know that things are changing, like there's a lot of grant funding and research being done, um, both in the engagement of minority communities in healthcare and life sciences, but also um, like in participation of different activities, whether it's um, collecting your data regularly or giving you access to even go into the institution so that your data can be collected, right? So, you know, some people may not have transportation to go to a hospital. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, complex issues around that in terms of the now, I mean, I don't know that there's a, you know, a silver bullet that addresses all of it. Um, but there's one, I think just recognizing <laughs> that, you know, this is an issue or like, Hey, there may be certain biases and, um, the different types of problems you're trying to answer. I think that's, that's a great first step. And then the second is, when you are training, like what is the sample size of data you have that represent some of these other um, minority groups? And can you set up effective experiments that 
whether it's through sampling or you know different types of maybe synthetic data, there's a lot of interest in developing more cloud and capability around generating synthetic data that's more realistic. Um, although that's a bit far off, I think. But there's lots of things that we're trying to do in the interim. I don't yeah. know if it helps, but I think we're trying. It's just, you know, it's a pretty tough issue. And there are like some like AI approaches, right? Like there's some there's some algorithmic things you can do to try to mitigate it. Um, but it sounds like that's not really the the solution either. That's sort of like a stopgap. Yeah, I, I would say absolutely. Right? Like there's really nothing at the end of the day that would be more performant or be more optimal than um, being able to collect that variety of data or information to make it a more fair process. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's weird because um, I, I think like I said this in like a prior episode, but it just kind of stuck with me. Um, <laughs> I, I think like it's weird because right now I think a lot of the, the bias and, and, and also maybe I would say discrimination or, or racism. I know these aren't the same. I know racism and discrimination is, is very different than, than bias, but like those things have, I think, existed in a distributed way in our society, you know, mostly the result of our, our individual actions or our, 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 like our, our process or like our laws, but it's just been like this, there's not like a single, you know, central place where bias and discrimination and racism happen <laughs> globally, right. right? It's like every every municipality, every every community can can be as bad as they they want to be. <laughs> um, but I, with AI, you do start to centralize that, and it's really weird. Um, and I think that that's why I think you have this um, increased responsibility. Um, you know, for the first time in history of man, you know, if if Google or Apple or Facebook do something that that has bias or 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 prejudice um it is centralized in a way that it's never been before you know yeah and i mean you and i were just talking about earlier kind of the like how do we make ai more explainable so if it is making these if it is going to you know have these more biased decisions or (laughs) discriminate against certain groups whether you're talking about life sciences or insurance or whatever that thing is um like, is there a way we can start to audit or um, architect a solution where each decision point is, um, you know, recorded and explainable? And there's a lot of work in progress on that topic, but I don't know that we've necessarily gotten 100% of the way there. Yeah, yeah. All right, so Michelle, why don't we why don't we shift and talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing um, at Slalom? Because I think I think like these topics we're discussing in the abstract, I think we can we can talk about them more more concretely. Um, and so you're doing um, work on detecting melanoma. Tell us a little bit about like what that is and how that project came to be. Yeah, so you know it's ironic actually because um, like we met at a conference on AI and ethics, and then. Uh, I happened to meet these stakeholders at an event that we hosted for healthcare life sciences and AI and out in San Francisco. Um, And so we were on a panel discussion um, around AI and the future of healthcare, ironically. (laughs) And, um, you know, just, it turns out so that the folks that we're working with are um, at the Melanoma Institute at UCSF. And, you know, it turns out some of their research is, leveraging AI and machine learning to look at kind of a holistic integrated analysis, meaning looking at everything from images to a holistic view of the patient. So 
everything from images to like genomics and sequencing information, et cetera, um, to be able to, uh, at the end of the day, like increase patient survival rates for malignant melanoma. So it's, it's super cool um, that, you know, they already started down this research path and they were interested in talking more because of our collaboration with the American Cancer Society, which was very similar, but focused and limited to images. So with American Cancer Society, we were looking at breast cancer tissue, uh, tumor tissue images and applying ML to find patterns that a computer could see, but not necessarily a human um, at a scale much faster than what humans would normally be able to do. Um, so that's sort of how we met. And then like the, the effort that we're starting to collaborate on that we haven't um, finished is around predicting different stages of melanoma. Yeah. So you talked about genetics, genomics. So you're, you're pulling in like, like genomics information. And then you talked about images. You're pulling in like, would that be like photos of, of the skin or something? Yeah. So it would be a mix of what's uh, the clinical images, which would be kind of like the actual photos you would take of, of the skin, um, which is interesting because I haven't worked with those before. But then what we have worked with in the past are these um, H&E or hematoxylin and eosine images, which are like those pink stained slides that you often see photos of with like pink cells and things like that. Um, and so that's at the cellular level. So that those are the kind of um, two or three different types of data sets. And then um, if you're interested in the genomics piece, a lot of that is actually open source and available um, on the Cancer Genome Atlas or TCGA. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm actually really curious, like when you, I'm curious about like the incremental value of the genomics, you know, like I, if you, if you had to, so just like as a, a question, so if you are going to predict melanoma with just images, and then you you add the the genomics. I'm just wondering, like, how much of a predictive effect that has? Because I mean, I know I know that it's genetically influenced, but I'm just curious, like, at the at the at the end point, like, where you're gonna make a prediction. Do you, do you guys know, like, how how influential that is? How much of a lift that gives? So we'll see in this particular use case. I can't give a concrete answer on this one, but in general, I can definitely speak to uh, like other collaborations that we've sponsored with Caltech and others around like the genomics adds a huge amount of value because like ultimately when you're starting to do eventually to a stage where let's say you want to um, go into like early drug discovery or go into like actual the drug development life cycle, the genomics will be um, incredibly important to understanding kind of like the different causes or relationships um, to like how it externally manifests, but then um, and what internally is happening to cause those manifestations, if that makes sense. So um, like if you want to get that holistic picture, it's yes, you can morphologically tell from the outside that, you know, yeah, this, this small thing that it then eventually grows into stage five, which is a really big thing, you know, that's kind of like an easier problem. But what's more interesting is the genomics piece gives you an understanding of, all right, cool. So as, you know, this small thing becomes that big thing, what's happening on the inside that causes those changes and how does that evolve as it becomes uh, more severe? So that, I think that's really the exciting part is the genomics. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how does this, how does this like go forward? Like, so you're, 
you know, you're at Slalom, you're, you're pulling profit from your, your commercial work to fund, you know, the, the AI for purpose, the AI for good. You partner then with UCSF and you're doing this melanoma study. And this is like at no charge to UCS, UC, I can't say it. UC, no, you're fine. <laughs> SF. Um, is that right? And like, and what happens to like the IP and, and like, what, how do you deliver this as open source? Like, what is that? What does this look like? Great question. And I think for AI for good, this is where it's also really important is that we share back to the community. Um, and so uh, these types of research collaborations um, are always going to be one publicly referenceable. So you, like you and I can talk about them. Um, and then the second thing is ultimately what we're aiming for is a scientific publication. And as part of that publication, uh, well, and then the IP belongs to, you know, the, the researchers, not to us. Um, but as part of that publication process, you know, it's pretty standard practice in academia to open source the code once, you know, you're far enough along the road um, toward publication. And so our intent will be to give this back to the community as part of that publication. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. So you're going to like essentially publish the work, open source the code so that other people can grab it and run with it and, and put it out there. Absolutely. And, and hopefully make it better, right? That's, that's the awesome part about science and, and AI for good is that we should be contributing back to the community, both through the AI machine learning process but also giving others an opportunity to learn from what we did um, and also improve upon it. Cause I mean, nobody's perfect. So. Yeah. And there's the whole like reproducibility too, right? Like, like <clears throat> papers like should be results should be reproducible, which means like you need sort of the, the code and, and, and maybe the data and the, and the provenance of the data and, and all that as well. Um, exactly. But- but when you put the code out there, does that mean like what is the code? Is it is it a trained is it is it trained models as well as the actual you know architecture? Is it is it data? Like can people go and and grab these models and use them, or or is it more like the the method of of learning the model that you're putting out there? Good question. So the data won't necessarily be out there unless it's open source, like TCGA or um, you know the protein libraries. All of those things are open source, so you could easily uh, replicate those. Um, but then any proprietary information collected by the research institutes, you know, that stays with them. Um, but the rest of the code, in terms of like how the model is developed, but then also um, you know the the training bits are a little bit iffy, but certainly kind of how the model is developed and all of the code associated to that will be released. One thing that gets me really excited um, is how we're evolving the way we share data and the security around that, of course. <laughs> you know, we should always be compliant and respectful of data privacy laws. Um, but there's, I think there's a huge opportunity with like federated architectures and federated learning and data exchanges that I think is largely untapped today. So I don't know if you're seeing that at Anthem, but I think it's, re- especially in healthcare and life sciences, really high opportunity. Yeah. Can you, so Michelle, not everybody who's listening is, is, you know, coming from an AI background and probably, probably most are not. Um, so can you talk for a moment about what that means? Yeah. And in the cutting, and it is truly a more cutting edge, I would say application. There's a handful of groups that have done this, um, successfully at, at scale, I should say, or in production. Um, but federated learning or federated architectures are essentially those that support. Um, so, you know, normally when you go through kind of like a, 
a data collection process, you put everything into your data lake or like one central place, as you were saying earlier, Jason. So we take everything and put it in our one, you know, ecosystem or warehouse, and then we start to do all of our cool stuff on top of it. What the federated model would allow us to do is say, it, you know, because that consolidation breaks a lot of compliance rules once you start getting into um, GDPR and CC, uh, yeah, CCPA, um, it would allow us to keep all of our data in our environments, but we could train and abstract our learnings at, uh, from the model at a global level. So essentially we could learn without actually moving data out of your kind of infrastructure. Yeah, and very cool. Would be super kind of cool. like the kind of like the Apple versus Google. <laughs> <laughs> um, Apple wants to you know train on your data on your phone. Um, whereas Google wants to like suck it all up and then, and then train centrally. <laughs> exactly. But this would be a happy medium. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, all right. So, uh, just shifting a little bit here, um, you know, as we get to the, the tail end here, um, you mentioned what you're excited about. I was going to, I was going to ask you that, that question in a, in a broader sense. What are you excited about? <laughs> um, as you, as you look towards the future. That's a great question in terms of um, AI for good. I mean, I think the federated learning is huge. Um, the second thing I'm really excited about, well, besides robotics, but people don't, I don't know, when I say, when I answer with robotics, people don't get that excited. So. <laughs> uh, but I am really excited about robotics, but um, also kind of like the creativity of AI uh, is, is really interesting to me. And we're starting to see it in more kind of um, business applications or practical applications these days. Um, where we're saying, hey, like, let's use it. And when I say creativity, I largely am talking about GANs, a specific type of um, AI modeling. But like, we're starting to see that in the life sciences where, it, and also some pet projects around like, can AI create art? But <laughs> like in life sciences, it's really interesting because we're like, hey, cool. Here's like, you know, a million different constellations of proteins uh, as an AI, just sort of read this. I'm not going to tell you all the science behind it. Like, go make up what you think it's going to look like, or go make up like 10 different things that you think proteins could look like that you haven't learned or quote unquote read from these other models. Um, and that's, it, it's really exciting. And um, the example I'm referring to is actually something DeepMind has done around um, this particular space, but there's so much more we could be doing with it. What about you? Um, yeah, I, so I just going off what you said for a moment. There's there's this um, other study very similar to what you described, where they they learn like some laws of physics to describe our universe, without having you know given the system those laws in advance. And it turned out the laws they learned are actually like really really similar to the ones that we you know that we use to describe our universe. You know, so it was kind of cool to see a machine like come up with the same kind of stuff that we've developed over years to describe our universe. Um, but yeah, what am I excited about? Um, I'm excited about working from home <laughs> <laughs> and not having to commute an hour into Atlanta. Uh, that's probably one of the, the more exciting things. Uh, I'm excited about learning how to play piano. Um, I actually, <laughs> so oh, yeah, so if I focus on work stuff um, or like maybe like tech stuff, um, I think the personalized medicine stuff is really exciting. Um, like if you, if you look at sort of end game, um, there's, there's this opportunity to sort of like stop aging, uh, for, 
for people. Like they'll, they'll be like a generation, whether it's, you know, 50 years from now or, or a thousand years from now, there'll be a generation that like is the last generation to die of natural causes in some ways. And, um, you know, I, that could sort of go wrong in a lot of different ways. So, uh, I'm not going to claim that that's, you know, good in the absolute, but like, um, as we walk closer to that goal, um, I mean, just the, I think the personalized medicine is going to give us the ability to, to deal with cancer in a way that it's like very rare to die from cancer, for example. Um, and, and similarly, like you're not going to get surprised by like late stage cancer. Like it's going to, it's going to be detected very early on, you know, by, by your breath or, or by, by your blood or, um, you know, by your speech or, or like whatever else is, is a signal that has enough, you know, whatever, whatever sensor data we can get that has enough signal in it. So I think, I think that notion is, is exciting for me, you know, as I get older, like I, I hope that stuff gets in place <laughs> soon. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess that's what I would say. I, I feel like if, I don't know about you, Michelle, but like, I feel like if somebody asks me this question of like, what's exciting, like, like day to day, I'm going to have a completely different answer. Different answer. Me too. I was going to say, well, but Hey, given your, um, what you are excited about, at least in response here, you might look 10 years younger <laughs> in real life. Not just on that video <laughs> via the Chinese AI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of that AI. That was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I need to try it. <laughs> um, all right. So last question for you is um, what are you um, most anxious about or, or what are you most concerned about? Maybe the, the sort of the semi-opposite question. Yeah. It, for me, it's sort of who's going to be left behind is what keeps me up at night, right? Like, are we doing a good job as, as a society going back to a little bit to that inclusiveness, um, giving everyone an opportunity to participate and create code, develop whatever, you know, whatever part of the process, but engage in AI ML. Like I think everyone agrees that AI ML is the future or is some part of the future. Um, and how do we make sure that everyone gets to be part of that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's really, that's really prescient as, uh, as we're seeing that happen. Like, I mean, we're seeing that happen for, for wealth disparity already. Right. And, um, and education disparity and, um, it gets harder and harder to catch up. Right. Um, so I, I definitely could see that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's AI is and machine learning, whatever, um, aspect of AI it's, in pretty much every part of our life now, right? Whether it's on your phone, it's healthcare, life sciences, it's insurance and finance. Uh, so we have to figure out a way that everyone can kind of go along this journey with us. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes from Yogi Berra is, uh, the future is not what it used to be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just like, I love it. It's just so funny and weird to me. Right. And, and I mean, it's not what it used to be. Like, if you look at like the, the, the expectations for the future, you know, in like popular science fiction, I mean, it's completely different. Like if you look at like the asthma foundation books, like I don't have a, you know, nuclear powered ray gun. Um, <laughs> and I certainly didn't have it by like the fifties. <laughs> um, right. And, um, you know, space odyssey 2001 is a little bit lagging. Um, although we're probably on that path. Um, I, I think, 
I think one thing that is is a little bit scary is, um, and it's kind of related to what you just said, but it's like a little bit more of a niche. So, like, and I think we're seeing it now with with our current political environment and social environment is is people's ability to um to to get caught up in sort of like non truths and to 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 be unable to sort of like distinguish um what's like real versus what's not and and i think like that's there's always been that ability right but it but it goes back to what i said earlier it's always been done in a distributed way like you always could have some kind of like guy in the corner you know preaching that he was you know you know had a cure for this or that um but like the way that you know ai algorithms kind of spoon feed certain narratives to people right and that people are are manipulating those those narratives and those algorithms um is i think concerning and like it's just like a it's just like a national security and like a social concern you know it's it's like what you said but just like a specific nuance of it that that i think is scary yeah and and to your point the scale is also kind of a scary component of it because it's not just like that guy in the corner it's like hey that guy in the corner can you know he's able to influence um what's real or not to millions and millions of people (laughs) through technology when you say when you say on the corner do you mean like in the white house (laughs) i mean you can infer either way (laughs) i just no i I won't i won't i won't go there politically but i i guess i just like i was i was pushing back because um i think the notion of that person being in the corner is changing too right like that that person is now center stage sometimes it's whether it's like a foreign agency or whether it's our own political leaders or whether it's the ceo of a company um you don't even have to be in the corner anymore. You can just be like, look at me, I'm manipulating the truth. And everyone's like, awesome job, man. You're doing a great job with manipulating that truth. <laughs> right. Um, well, and the distribution of it and the scale is um, incredible. So then, you know, you can have your message reach um, a mass very quickly. Yeah, for sure. All you got to do is like start a podcast, start saying stuff, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> get guests to support your narrative and you're, you're, you can just, yeah, totally. Um, I'm just kidding. That uh, got well, dark. Michelle, <laughs> what was that? I said that got dark very quickly. <laughs> um, well, Michelle, thank you for coming on today. Um, it was a fun conversation as always. I'm glad we could record it and, uh, and others could hear it. Um, and, uh, um, it's awesome that, that you're you're able to to take corporate profits and turn them into uh, a funding source to do good um, and to, to keep us living long and healthy. <laughs> we'll do our best. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Awesome. Talk to you later. All take right, care. Cheers. <laughs> Bye. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. This has been a a full year since I started the podcast. This is like the anniversary month. So very exciting. Um, Looking forward to uh, the second year of this podcast. Thanks for sticking around. If you're new, welcome to the show. And and I hope you'll stick with us as we go forward into the next episode. So find us on social media. Like us. Share us. If you have feedback to send, uh, feedback at wewonderpodcast.com is how you get it to me and my team. And uh, looking forward to this journey. All right. Take care.